Hi everybody, Liam here. Just a few quick notes before we start the show. In this episode, I use a lot of audio from the KPFA archives. These clips were from news coverage that originally aired back in 1969 and 70. I've got a show on KPFA now, so it was really fun to feel this connection to journalists who came a few generations before me. Anyway, as you'll hear, some of the reporters who recorded this audio put themselves in a lot of danger. So I just wanted to say thank you to them and to KPFA for supporting independent media for so many decades. Also, since people have been asking about the Canyon miniseries, yes, there will be more episodes. I've just been trying to track down a few more sources for those stories, but hopefully you'll be hearing them soon. Last thing. Thanks to all of you supporting East Bay Yesterday on Patreon. I literally could not do it without you. Okay, on to the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Well, the sound in the background that you hear uh, is uh, the sound of brick chipping and the sound of drumming that's going on in People's Park this afternoon. A fine Sunday afternoon. There are probably, oh, I'd guess a good thousand people out here. As most of you probably know, uh, People's Park is uh, resting on land that uh, belongs to the University of California. There, there's some dispute about uh, what's going to happen in this situation. But in any case, the situation as it now exists is that many, many people have joined in a cooperative effort to turn this uh, area between uh, Dwight Way and Haste uh, into a park. Back in the turbulent days of the late 60s, one Bay Area location came to symbolize the tension of the time. Even today, to many, the name People's Park still brings back images of clashes between police and anti-establishment protesters. The uh, situation now is that uh, the trees and so on that are along the edge of the park here are being bulldozed. I have a press pass, officer. I have a press pass, officer. Officer, are you not allowing the press in? Are there press down there? From the very beginning, the Bay Area was a wild place to be in the 1960s. Within the first few months of that decade, cops were using fire hoses to blast protesters down a giant marble staircase inside San Francisco City Hall. Then there was the free speech movement and dozens of sit-ins for civil rights and the Stop the Drafts riots in downtown Oakland. Towards the end of the decade, Berkeley students were part of a movement to create ethnic studies programs. The Third World Liberation Front, as it was called, was a coalition of Black, Asian American, Latino, and Native American students. They went on strike, and their demands were eventually met with mass arrests and beatings. The Third World Liberation Strike was the first time that Berkeley was put under military occupation. It wouldn't be the last time that federal troops would be patrolling the streets of the East Bay. California's governor, Ronald Reagan, built his image by trashing everything that Berkeley students stood for, and he already planned to ride that reputation as a hardline conservative all the way to the White House. Here's Tom Dalzell, 
author of a new book called The Battle for People's Park. Ronald Reagan, he had national ambitions, and his campaign was the welfare cheats, blacks riding in the ghetto slash Black Panthers, and that mess in Berkeley. So he was looking for a fight and actually had taken part in uh, Department of Defense uh, training on Operation Cable Splicer on quelling urban uprisings. Uh, can you exp go into a little bit more detail on what Operation Cable Splicer was? Because I don't think most people have heard of it, and it's a pretty wild story. Well, Seth Rosenfeld, who wrote a great book called The uh, Subversives, did the original work discovering and uncovering Operation Cable Splicer and then Operation Garden Patch. And they were Department of Defense plans for quelling riots, whether they be in uh, black ghettos or on, or on campuses, exercises to do. And they actually did simulated war games doing it. And uh, Reagan and Meese took part of them in them in early 69 and then tr actually ended up trying it out on people's heart. That story reminds me of the type of thing that you would hear kind of like right-wing conspiracy theorists talking about now, like Alex Jones would say, oh, the government is out there practicing these war games to perpetrate on the American citizenry. But this is actually something that really happened in the 1960s. They were basically preparing to send in troops to squash protests and urban uprisings. Right. They, they believed that federal in intervention was a necessary part of it. They were preparing. Just a quick correction, Tom Dalzell just referred to Operation Garden Patch. The official name of the Department of Defense's Civil Disturbance Plan was Operation Garden Plot, not Patch. In any case, both Operation Cable Splicer and Garden Plot were secretly developed after riots in places like Detroit, Newark, and Watts during the 1960s. The goal was essentially to prepare the National Guard for military occupation of American cities. I can't imagine that the people who drew up these protocols ever thought they'd be triggered by the construction of a park. In Berkeley, there was fatigue about fighting the war and just didn't seem like anything was going to stop the war. And the left in, in, in Berkeley was really at a crossroads where it felt like beating your head against the wall on the war. And so People's Park became an alternative where we could show the world how we lived. Um, you know, when we go take a sister by the hand, take her away from this troubled land, let's go to People's Park. It was going to be something positive. There had been a few dozen houses on the land that would eventually become People's Park. But the university evicted the people who were living there and demolished their homes. The original plan was to build student housing, but that didn't end up happening. The university bought it quite a few years ago, and they were supposedly going to build dormitories, but then Reagan decided not to give them the money. So it sat around for a long time, and people used it as a parking lot. It was horrible and ugly and muddy. I have some really compelling photographs in the book of the rusted out cars and kids playing in mud puddles. The stewardship was, it wasn't appalling, it was absent. They just did nothing with the land. And then just like a few weeks ago, they decided to make it into a park because around here there's really no parks for all the children and people. You know, there's really nowhere. The folks who organized People's Park were a mix of the Berkeley left at the time. Michael Delacour, Leanne Chu, Wendy Schlesinger, Frank Bardacki, Judy Gumbo, Stu Albert, Paul Glossman. There were others, too. 
students, hippies, yippies, activists, pranksters, politicos, even some store owners who looked out on Telegraph and realized that folks needed a better place to hang out than the avenue. The idea was simple. Get some sod, spread the word, show up, drag away all the junk and trash, and just build. There was no leader. People just showed up and grabbed shovels. Even without a master plan, it worked. Over the first few weeks, hundreds, thousands even, came out to transform a dirty parking lot into a place with grass, playground equipment, gardens. And then the university, under heavy pressure from Governor Reagan, decided they wanted their property back. The university decided, Reagan decided, that they were going to move in in the very early morning hours of May 15th. Highway Patrol and Berkeley Police came in with a fencing company. I think it's just pure vengeance because obviously the university didn't do anything with it for years and the minute something constructive happens, they clamp down. Supposedly it's on the instructions of the police department, which couldn't be stupider since this is the ideal way for people to let out their tension. There were some people who had spent the night there because there were rumors it was going to happen. There had been a meeting the night before, what are we going to do? Are we going to do mass arrests? And that morning, three people refused to leave. They were arrested. Everybody else left. And the sun rose over Berkeley with a lot of the plants torn out, uh, with cyclone fence all around the park, and with police inside it. We have uh, quite a number of uh, policemen now arriving on the scene. Uh, carrying signs and the signs say no trespassing property of the regents of the University of California isn't necessary to shove sir really we're always asking our young people to be creative and when, in fact, they do something marvelously creative, what is the response? The response seems to be to come in and build a fence around it and ultimately to bulldoze it down. Just speaking as a member of the community, I would like to say that I have come to this park many times with groups of children from my little girl's nursery school. This is a city-run nursery school. Uh, the kids love it. It is a wonderful outing for them. I think the park, as far as I can tell, is used by all kinds of people from the community and should be definitely kept. So this song is called Shaky Ground. And I just want to put the university on notice that they are standing on very, very shaky ground. And then there was a rally that day on Sprawl Plaza, right? It was a hastily organized rally. There were a number of speakers. They invited Dan Siegel, who was the incoming student body president, to speak at the rally. He had not been involved in building the park, although he lived, I think he lived on Bowditch or Hastings. He lived very close to it. He'd seen it, uh, but he'd not been part of the park movement. Um, I don't think the park leadership really knew what they were going to ask people to do, but they didn't have to decide that because in his speech, Dan Siegel in the end, exhorted people, let's go take the park. I have a suggestion. Let's go to the people's park. Because... Uh, 
down there and take the part. Here's another one of the great fictions because the Reagan Meese narrative is they were rampaging down Telegraph. Meese being uh, Reagan's chief of staff, correct? Edward Meese? Yes. They were rampaging and breaking windows as they went. And, you know, the photographs that I, that I have in the book show a really peaceful walk down Telegraph with families, with um, parents holding, holding children's hands as they walked um, towards the park. When they got to haste, there was police presence. Most of the many police who had been at the park in the morning when they fenced it off had been released because there was no resistance. But the police blocked people at haste. And then um, somebody opened a fire hydrant and soaked the police with high-pressure water. Suddenly there was water. Suddenly there was water. It's coming from... uh coming from a fire hydrant that's been open here at the corner. And uh, so the situation now is that there's a huge stream of water roaring across the intersection. And then the tear gas started, and then, you know, there were some people in the back of the crowd who threw rocks. Um, and then the shit got real. charged by people who are throwing rocks in great numbers. And uh, matter of fact, the police are having to retreat around the corner, which means that it won't be long before they come back. Helicopter coming in overhead. Sound of something exploding. Looks like tear gas, yep. That's tear gas, and there's more coming. More tear gas coming. It's now exploding uh, back in the street. The Alameda County Sheriffs, yeah, were the ones specifically called the Blue Meanies. They wore blue jumpsuits. And there were a couple things about them. One, they, they did not have the ongoing relationship with young people in Berkeley or the tolerance. Many of them had been recruited upon return from Vietnam. So they were, they were dealing with their own issues from that war. And in fact, the group that ended up doing the killing, they were guards at Santa Rita who were not trained deputies. They were trained jailers and they'd been brought in yeah so there were there were berkeley police some berkeley police but the real problems were with the blue meanies today the the alameda sheriffs and uh there's a nurse a white a, a nurse wearing a nurse's uniform who's being beaten and pushed and when you're talking about the real problems what we're referring to is the fact that they started shooting at protesters with live ammunition. Policemen just shot somebody with a shotgun. They've got shotguns now and they're using them on people. Somebody was just shot with birdshot. The policeman had a fellow running away from him and he shot him as he was running away from him. There's some notorious events that happened that day, names that many people probably remember. Uh, James Rector, Alan Blanchard, Donovan Rundle. Can you tell me about some of these people that were either killed or severely injured after getting shot by police that day. Yeah, police were issued shotguns with birdshot and buckshot, although Sheriff Madigan originally denied that the sheriffs had fired any shots at all. 
uh, James Rector must have been killed by a demonstrator who was shooting a shotgun. Which is ludicrous because in the end it turned out that more than 30 people were shot by police that day. Yes. And it it all happened at the the south end of things. James Rector was a high school graduate who was visiting Berkeley. Uh, He had had a few little problems with the law, but nothing political and nothing violent. And he was standing on the roof of what was then the Grandma Bookstore with maybe... um, another 10 people, and there was a photograph taken of him on the roof, standing in his black leather jacket, probably 30 seconds before he was shot and killed, and nobody was doing anything. There was a claim that people were throwing rebar and and rocks from the roof. In fact, Governor Reagan and, and Chief of Staff Meese claimed that the pavement couldn't be seen. It was covered with bricks and rocks. And there were sheriffs who had been hit and knocked down. And as the deputies with the shotguns advanced, they had to step over the bodies of their fallen colleagues. And the, the photograph taken at the, at, right at the moment of the killing shows pretty clearly that there was nothing on the ground and there were no bodies. But James Rector was standing on the roof and a deputy named Lawrence Ritchie, who two months earlier had been in Vietnam as a helicopter machine gunner, aimed his shotgun loaded with buckshot at the roof to clear the roof. And the man standing next to Rector, Michael Mio, hit the ground fast. Rector didn't, and, and he got shot with uh, six, six wounds. He was um, taken to Herrick Hospital. He was upgraded to fair condition. This was on Thursday and Sunday, but on Monday morning he suddenly died with a slug lodged near his heart and just a little movement in it. Alan Blanchard was a carpenter and an artist who was working at the Berkeley Repertory Theater. They hit the carpenter of our theater, who happens to be an artist, and like that's one of the things he, he, he's a painter and a sculptor, and I just came from the hospital, and the buckshot exploded in one eye, lodged in his brain, and the other eye he has about 10% chance of regaining vision in. In other words, he's totally blind for the rest of his life. After he got shot, I, was on, I watched on the other roof, and they got another kid three times in the back. And when we tried to help him off the roof, the pigs shot tear gas at us. Donovan Rundle was a freshman who lived in those dorms on Upper Dwight. When the riots started, and when I say riot, I'm not sure that's the best word, because it really was a police, police attack where there was some rocks thrown back. But when it started, he went to campus. He got away from it. He sat under a tree, read Shakespeare. Things quieted down. He walked down Telegraph. He bought a hot dog. He ate it. When he got to Dwight, the 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 sheriffs were using a, they called it a pepper fogger, pepper gas being deployed, almost like a, a lawn blower. And they were moving people down west across Telegraph and... He sort of got moved down with that group. The pepper fucker died. The young people, maybe 20 of them, clapped. There had been no rocks or anything. And Richie, who had shot James Rector from 20 yards, shot Donovan Rundle in the, in the stomach with, with buckshot. He, he almost bled out on the street. His intestines were outside his body. What bothers me as a citizen is the fact that there was no indication of the people standing there, most of whom were uh, just innocent observers, there was no indication by the police or any authorities at that moment to say clear, clear out of the way. They walked past us without any utterance of getting out of the way. 
Uh, there was no indication at all that we were not supposed to be there. And there was no provocation. There was no, no rock throwing. There was uh, nothing of this sort at that time. Something that's really astonishing and tragic about these stories is that, as you mentioned, yes, there were people in the crowd who were throwing rocks at the police, but in the accounts of the people who were shot, it seems like they were mostly innocent bystanders. I mean, there's a story in here of a, a guy whose friend was an eighth grader who was taking a photograph and gets shot in the face. There's a, a painter who was dropping off a ladder and he just happened to be at the wrong place in the wrong time and they shot him in the leg. Yeah, yeah, it was indiscriminate. The, there was the architect who was going to visit a friend on, on Regency. Is that the one right above, uh, right above Telegraph? He got shot in the leg. He, he was angry. He went to see the mayor to complain about it, and they just kicked him out of the office because he was bleeding all over their rug. Yeah, I mean, there were, as far as I can tell, nobody who was shot was anything other than a bystander. As the jeeps ride up and down the streets, shooting the pepper fog machines at the people who are sort of gathered on the sidewalk, the uh, sheriff's deputy is actually firing this gun, this scatter gun, uh, at, at the crowds as, as the jeep goes by. Uh, I haven't seen anybody else hit specifically, but uh, uh, I had to duck behind a bush myself and managed to catch a few uh, splinters of something uh, in the side of my face uh, uh, as this jeep went by and the deputy fired at, fired at us. The police were carrying out pursuit and punishment methods after small groups of demonstrators when the large group crowds had already been dispersed. And how did President, or I'm sorry, at the time Governor Reagan respond? I mean, there was an outcry after sheriffs opened fire and, and shot more than 30 people in the streets of Telegraph. He was not apologetic, to say the least. No, he, he, he took the, the, the offensive. Later on, Ed Meese, his chief of staff, said James Rector deserved to die. But Reagan was completely unapologetic. If it takes a bloodbath, let, the, let it begin. Politics or the culture war or whatever you want to call it, it can do weird things to people's sense of justice and morality. Facts don't matter, only what side you're on. Ronald Reagan wasn't the only politician who refused to consider that the sheriffs might have overreacted when they opened fire on unarmed protesters and just random people who happened to be there. Here's former Berkeley City Councilman John DeBonis. I don't care. I'll tell you one thing. If that man shot that kid, that kid had it coming. And that's it. That's it. By the end of the day, May 15, 1969, People's Park was fenced. Dozens of people were in hospitals suffering gunshot wounds. A curfew had been imposed on the city, and the governor of California, Ronald Reagan, had decreed a state of emergency and sent the National Guard to Berkeley. The city was under military occupation. Reagan had declared a state of emergency during the Third World Liberation Strike. That was still in effect. So he didn't have to do a new declaration. He could call up the National Guard, and he did. And between two and 3,000 guardsmen came. Imagine walking past Berkeley's campus and seeing dozens of soldiers in combat fatigues standing shoulder to shoulder, rifles at the ready, blocking the entrance to Sproul Plaza. Oh, and they're all wearing gas masks that completely obscure their faces. This happened. And the photos look like something out of a nightmare. 
but conservative city council members like John DeBonis welcomed this site with open arms. Well, all I can say that this is a beautiful site. We, we have to have National Guardsmen to keep order, and if we can't, can't keep order, I hope another thousand come in. And these were, a lot of them were like kids, 18, 19, 20 years old. Yeah, they were in the National Guard for one reason and one reason only, to avoid Vietnam. I mean, they, they didn't sign up for urban warfare. But in any event, um, they bivouacked down at the marina. That's where the armored personnel carriers were. There were some sleeping in, in People's Park. They fraternized to some extent with the college students, especially the females. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're those shiny bayonets, and, and uh, they're just terrifying pictures of the, of the bayonets. Well, another scary thing about guys running around with bayonets is that people were dosing them. There's people sharing memories of, you know, slipping acid into the brownies that they were giving the National Guard. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum, eighth graders selling National Guard guys fake weed and stuff like that. So it was just a bizarre, a bizarre uh, situation where there's all these kinds of weird relationships happening between the National Guard and the people of Berkeley. I'd forgotten about the eighth grader with the fake weed, yeah. But there's a, there, there's a photograph in, in the book of a, of a young girl who I, I'd say is a teenager with maybe 25 or 30 National Guards surrounding her, all pointing their bayonets at this one girl. And she looks incredibly calm. I mean, yeah. her face is just placid. Right. And then there's several photographs of girls from Berkeley High who just sat in front of a phalanx of guards at, at Sather Gate. What the girls don't know is that a few minutes later, helicopters can come over spraying gas. But these Berkeley High girls, they were as tough as anybody. They were just afraid of nothing. They were moral witness, and they were, they were righteous girls. You know, as long as you're bringing up these young Berkeley High girls who were so brave, another story that's mentioned later in the book is absolutely crazy, that they were preparing for urban combat by learning first aid, and they even went so far as to cut each other and then practice sewing up each other's wounds. Yeah, they would cut each other in the fleshy part above the hip to figure out how to stitch. Yeah. They were tough. They've got to be curtailed. This is a this is a radical and a and an international conspiracy. We know it. This is a revolution, but they're not going to win it. A minute ago, you mentioned the famous incident of a helicopter swooping down over Berkeley campus, Sproul Plaza, and tear gassing the entire zone. There's a lot of controversy. You know, people contradict each other about what really happened. You research the story. How did it come to be that a helicopter tear-gassed the city of Berkeley, and what were the kind of effects of that attack? The Sanford Research Institute, SRI, had suggested this as a possible tactic for Vietnam. And so this was a, a dry run. I'd like to go into the gases that they've been using. started using the CS gas. The CS gas is a much more potent stuff. It has a burning agent in it, and it also has a nausea agent in it, in addition to the regular tear gas. And it was a complete disaster. I mean, it went, it flew over Cowell Hospital, where Donovan Rundle was recovering in a, in a hospital bed after being shot in the stomach. Beautiful day, windows open, here comes tear gas. Uh, the tear gas was 
spread as far north as Oxford School, which is a mile north of campus, as far south as Emerson. I mean, children all over Berkeley were running home crying. After our last period class had been in session for about 10 minutes, without warning, there was tear gas in almost all of the classrooms. Eyes burned, throats scratched, students and teachers did not know what to do. Many classes ran to the cafetorium, where the teachers had to deal with some very sick and very upset children. It shifted the public opinion on People's Park right there. The overreaction by, by Reagan and the National Guard really pushed the city to, to, to support the park. Just to clarify the, I guess, so-called strategy behind this helicopter attack, there was a gathering at Sproul Plaza that day. Students were, you know, giving speeches and things like that. But then according to the research that you conducted, the guards were actually kind of herding people into this square and then not letting them leave. People who just happened to be walking through Sproul Plaza at the time on their way to class or coming home from class, they weren't allowed to disperse. There was no effort to remove people from Sparrow Plaza, quite the opposite, actually. No, they, they, they were close in. I mean, th this was a drill. Let's enclose people and, and spray them from above. Due to the outrage, fortunately, there was only one helicopter tear gas attack, but it wasn't the end of kind of mass retribution on the city of Berkeley. So another operation that you detail in the book is the box uh, Operation Box, I believe it was called, where there was a mass arrest uh, of people on Shattuck, where innocent bystanders, shoppers, students, you name it, were just swept up and dragged off to Santa Rita. Can you take me through that day? Yeah, there, there were protests. There, there, although there was a curfew, it was ignored. And there were some marches going on on Shattuck and in North Berkeley. But the National Guard and the sheriffs did a sweep of Shattuck Avenue, pulling people out of stores. And this was during the day, right? This wasn't during at night. Day. Yeah, it was on uh, on the 22nd, Thursday the 22nd, uh, two days after the tear gas, a week after Bloody Thursday, and pushed into a, a parking lot where they're now building the 18-story hotel and kept there for a couple of hours. And, and the photographs show some really angry shoppers who now were on their way to Santa Rita. Um, yeah, I mean, this is kids, old people, you name it. Right. Just anybody who just happened to be on Shattuck that day got dragged or pushed into this parking lot and eventually put on a bus towards yeah. the county jail. The actual arrest was civil, and holding people there was fairly civil, although civil rights were certainly violated. You know, 483 people were arrested and charges were dropped against 483 people. Not a single charge stuck on what they did that day. But they took them out to Santa Rita, and there the, the male prisoners had a really hard time. Now, I was arrested in the parking lot when the Berkeley police uh, didn't honor my press credential, which I had received from the Berkeley Police Department, and I ended up on the bus to Santa Rita and uh, was not at all prepared for what happened. Uh, when the bus arrived in Santa Rita, the first people off the bus were beaten by, by the sheriff's deputies there. The first person off was beaten very badly, and when he objected to it, uh, they beat him, the three of them beat him very heavily in full view of, I believe, about 150 men who had been arrested. And then they made us all lie on the concrete, which is sort of a gravelly concrete, and we would lie with our face, side of our face down, and we'd be facing left for about a half an hour, and then they'd let us turn our face to the 
other direction, but we'd have to remain in this uh, prone position. The sheriffs, many of them were recently in Vietnam and really resented the students in a way that the Berkeley police did not, really took it out on them. Throughout the night, the guards beat their prisoners. They humiliated them. They kept them awake. They wouldn't even allow people access to their medications like insulin. When a lawyer showed up at Santa Rita requesting a list of those who had been detained, they arrested him too and threw him in a maximum security unit. The charge, obstructing a law enforcement officer from performing his duties, was tossed out in return for the lawyer, Peter Haberfeld, waiving his right to sue the county. One of the little anecdotes that you end the book with is a story about the origin of the famous song, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. I was really shocked to find out that there was a connection to Berkeley regarding that song. It's such a classic. Can you explain the uh, origins of the song, What's Going On, and what it has to do with People's Park? Sure. You know, the Four Tops were actually perf- scheduled to perform in Oakland on the night of May 15th, and they were, they were in Oakland. And they got on their tour bus and came sort of towards Berkeley, close enough to see the hell that was going on in Berkeley. And um, Obi Benson was the, the bass singer for the Four Tops, and he went back to the hotel and he wrote the song that night, What's Going On. He took it, um, the Four Tops did one recorded, he took it to Marvin Gaye, Marvin Gaye reworked it a little bit, but yeah, it was. It was a, an impression, a reaction by the, the bass singer for the, for the Four Tops. You spent clearly a lot of time putting this book together. Besides its historical value, what do you see as the current relevance for the story? Why should people pick up this book and, and study these events now? Well, we should always study history, but I think that if we think that what happened then could not happen again in terms of the state reaction, we are wrong. Unfortunately, it already did happen again. Almost exactly a year after the People's Park conflict, National Guard soldiers shot and killed four students and wounded nine at Kent State University during an anti-war protest. Less well-known is another tragedy that also happened that same month at Jackson State, a historically black university. In that incident, police opened fire on students killing two and wounding 12. Just like in Berkeley, there were no criminal convictions for any of these killings. After 1969, the battle for People's Park continued. I'm not gonna get into all the details, but I will say that about a week ago, I went to a festival celebrating the park's 50th anniversary. Some of the music that you heard during this episode was recorded there. Anyway, people were dancing and tending the garden making art and playing basketball and lying on the grass, soaking up the sun and enjoying the free food. I even saw Michael Delacour, one of the park's original founders there. And none of that would have been possible if Michael and his friends gave up after they saw the bulldozers tear up the trees and grass they'd planted. Instead of quitting, they went back and replanted and kept fighting. I'm there, a young man who was taking a pot of plants, and after digging across here in the very hard earth, 
is putting earth around it. Uh, altogether, I would say that either planted or mostly ready to be planted are some 25, 30 perhaps various types of rather beautiful plant life. There is a small tree here and uh, right now there's no sign of authorities and everybody seems to be having a great time. God bless the grass that grows through the crack They roll the concrete over it to try and keep it back The concrete gets tired of what it has to do It breaks and it buckles and the grass grows through And God bless the grass Happy birthday, everybody. Happy birthday, People's Park, number the big 5-0. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. If you want to see photos from the book, The Battle for People's Park, check out eastbayyesterday.com. Thank you to Tom Dalzell and everybody at Heyday Books for helping make this happen, including Emmerich Anklin, Diane Lee, and Steve Wasserman, who wrote a great afterword in the book about his experiences at People's Park while he was a student at Berkeley High. I also want to thank everybody involved with the KPFA productions I used in this episode, especially Carol Amex, Don Kaufman, and Denny Smithson. The song, God Bless the Grass, was performed by Malvina Reynolds. And shout out to the bands that played in People's Park last week at the anniversary party. I used music from the Funky Nixons and Rubies in Town. Also, don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, do me a favor. If you like this episode, please spread the word about it and tag me if you do. Thanks again to all the Patreon supporters. You guys are keeping this show alive. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back very soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. God bless the grass that grows through the crack. They roll the concrete over it to try and keep it back. The concrete gets tired of what it has to do. It breaks and it buckles and the grass grows through. And God bless the grass. God bless the truth that fights toward the sun. They roll the lies over it and think that it is done. It moves through the ground and reaches for the air. And after a while, it is growing everywhere. And God bless the grass. God bless the grass that grows through cement. It's green and it's tender and it's easily bent. But after a while, it lifts up its head. For the grass is living and the stone is dead. God bless the grass. One more verse, okay? God bless the grass that's gentle and low. Its roots, they are deep and its will is to grow. And God bless the truth, the friend of the poor, 
and the wild grass growing at the poor man's door and god bless the grass